This is Archive Atlanta, episode 207, Atlanta Sports Arena. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This week's mini episode is all about the Atlanta Sports Arena, which once stood on Chester Avenue in today's Reynoldstown neighborhood. A listener suggested this long, long ago, but I've only recently took a deep dive into the research and like all good random rabbit holes, the sports arena did not disappoint. This is a story of basketball, boxing, wrestling, amateur sports, square dancing, 70s rock bands, and Muhammad Ali. Before we get into the arena, let's specify the area we're talking about. So Chester Avenue runs from Wiley Street all the way down to Glenwood Avenue, although it's cut in half by Interstate I-20. So we're focusing on the part that is above I-20, just off Memorial Drive, like 500 feet off Memorial Drive. In the 1930s, this was a heavy industrial area. The intersection had like a petroleum company, chemical corporations, laundry supplies, and truck sales. Now, the Warren Company owned the majority of the site where this arena would be built, and they specialized in refrigerator manufacturing. Founded by brothers George and Virgil Warren around the 1880s, I think, if I got it right, they moved it to Atlanta in like 1908, and George's son, Lovick and Virgil Jr., would run the company until it was sold in 1968. So like many companies and corporations at the time, the Warren Co. hosted amateur sports teams. Theirs was basketball. And the sons, Elsie, as he went by, and Virgil, were very like, I think of them as like classic rich kids, right? Like their dad owned a successful business. Their uncle became a philanthropist later in life. And so they're able to really explore what interested them. And for both, it was definitely sports. And the Warren team was really good. They won championships. They traveled to other cities across Georgia. Um, and they were just playing really well. So in 1937, news hit the papers about the formation of Warren Arena, Inc., which was led by Virgil and Elsie Warren and a third man, J.D. Harris. And their plans were to construct a 4,000-seat all-steel arena with Southside parking for 500 cars, all at a cost of $25,000. With plans that were to be completed by December of that year, the indoor basketball court would measure 50 by 80 feet, and the venue would be great for tennis, boxing, wrestling, and of course, basketball. Now, the general idea behind this is for the Warren team, um, which, by the way, didn't have a name. So it's really funny. Like, a lot of other companies had goofy names, but they were just the Warrens. So this was also going to be kind of the home venue for the Warren team. On December 20th, 1937, the Warrens played the Olsen's Terrible Swedes. And let me tell you, the rabbit hole of barnstorming, traveling, semi-professional basketball really interesting, overwhelming. I'm not going to dump it all out in here for you. But the Swedes were similar to, I think, what we would maybe compare today, the Harlem Globetrotters. So kind of like they traveled around, they played exhibition games, and they played against local teams. In Warren Arena's inaugural event, the Warrens actually defeated the terrible Swedes 46-24. to In January of 1938, L.C. received his license to promote heavyweight wrestling matches in Atlanta and set up the first big event just a week later, featuring Alibaba, who was known as the Terrible Turk, versus Angelo Cristaldi, who was the Italian sensation. 
That same month, the Celtics played. And no, not those Celtics. The Celtics of the 1930s and 20s were a super famous barnstorming team, just like the Swedes. They traveled the country, they played in many cities, but they were really, really good. The Warren Arena was also selected to host the fourth annual Invitational Amateur Court Tournament and the Georgia's, like, the state of Georgia's high school basketball championship. Ads in the paper from that time called it Atlanta's Palace of Sports. In the fall of 1939, the Warren Arena was leased to a young Irishman from New York named Tom McCarthy. The 28-year-old McCarthy was an executive at an electric razor firm by day and boxing referee by night. So when he took over at the helm of the arena, he switched his title to promoter. And part of this change was renaming the venue to just Sports Arena. And this is kind of where we get the Atlanta Sports Arena that we know it as maybe today in history. Now, the Sports Arena debuted at the same time as World War II, and this shaped a lot of the arena's history over the next decade. The first thing that McCarthy did was added dancing, square dancing to be exact, and he also kept up wrestling and boxing. Now, sometime in the early 1940s, the complex is sold to Clyde Darby, who was a very close family friend of the Warren family, and Darby selects a manager named Lamar Wells. So he was also a local promoter, basketball aficionado, um, and his job was to recruit the players for the arena's two basketball amateur teams. So at this point, the two teams are the Sports Arena Blues, which was a women's team, and the Sports Arena Rebels, who was the men's team. Wells even built a house behind the arena to house the female players. And I want to take a moment to deep dive for a second into the Arena Blues, because this was also very fascinating history. I had never heard of them, and it's very appropriate for Women's History Month. The Amateur Athletic Union was formed in 1888 and dedicated to the promotion and development of amateur sports. And they had all the sports, but specifically with basketball, the first Amateur Athletic Union Women's Basketball Tournament was held in April of 1926 in Los Angeles. And then popularity really seems to peak around World War II. So the Sports Arena Blues began in 1942, but by 1944, they were state champions and rated third best team in the National League. Famous team members include Anne the Panther Paradise, the first woman from Georgia to win three All-American honors. She played on the Blues from 1946 to 48. And there was Dora McPherson and her sister Blanche, who were recruited to play from the Tennessee, um, I think they were the Volte Bomberettes, and later joined the Blues. And then there was Aileen Banks, and she was really, truthfully considered the Michael Jordan of women's basketball. She played um, on the Atlanta Blues, and she took the team to win the national championship title in 1947. During this time, the sports arena was still holding their square dances three times a week, 70 cents per couple for admission. They focused on round dancing, which originated in the 18th and 19th century. Um, and it's kind of just all the rage in Atlanta. It's If you look it up, it's like an early version of square dancing. Um, and the band was the Victory Melodies Orchestra. Now, during the war, a lot of the admission profits or what they got from the couples were donated to war funds. It was in December of 1955 that a young Elvis Presley performed for a crowd of under a thousand people at Wednesday Night Ladies Night. 
And there is a story that he he had dinner in the house that was behind the arena. So whatever woman was living there like cooked for him. She's like, oh, he was such a nice little boy. It would be weeks later that he made his national TV debut and then catapulted to stardom. Another early performance is a nine-year-old Brenda Lee, who I did not realize was local to Georgia, sang with Boots Woodall and the TV Wranglers at the sports arena. In 1960-ish, Paul Jones purchased the arena and remodeled and renamed the venue after himself. Now, he planned to continue using it for wrestling. He was a big-time wrestling promoter. Um, He had been doing a lot of matches at the Municipal Auditorium, but the plan is, like, when that wasn't available, he could use the arena. And the mid-60s wrestling names are hilarious, and I have been asked to do a, a wrestling episode, which I will do. But I have to share. So there's the Von Brauners, Klondike Bill, Pancho Villa, and Tony Nero, just to name a few. Now let's fast forward to 1970. So Muhammad Ali had been barred from boxing because of his refusal to be drafted to fight in Vietnam. This is a whole other episode one day, but his big comeback fight was in Atlanta. And while that fight itself happened at the Municipal Auditorium, both Ali and his opponent, Jerry Quarry, spent two weeks prior completing all of their workouts at the Paul Jones Arena. That same year, we see the arena's emergence as a rock concert venue. And so from 1970 through at least 1973, they've hosted Fleetwood Mac, the Hampton Grease Band, the Kinks, Kenny Rogers, Grateful Dead, Steve Miller Band, B.B. King, uh, Chuck Berry, Ted Nugent, the Guess Who, Cheech and Chong, and the Marshall Tucker Band. Just to name a few. I, I took out the names that weren't like super famous because I couldn't say them all. There is a great quote from The Great Spreckled Bird um, that I ha- I'm just going to say verbatim because I think it's it's really a great way to describe the arena. So it says, quote, inside the atmosphere is one of wood and honest corruption, not steel, concrete, or hydraulic hype. Outside, the feeling is, well, like the industrial part of town, you know, warehouses, steel mesh fences, truck loading docks, cotton mill buildings, and even some plain red dirt road dear to the heart of a country boy. End quote. In 1975, it was still hosting wrestling matches, but it was adding in religious revivals. So there was a tent in the back that held some evangelists, but inside in 1975, um, they featured eight-year-old Michael Lord Jr., who was just kind of a preaching sensation. And so he preached in the wrestling rink and he, you know, the headline in the paper is like, Michael Lord wrestles the devil. As the events waned into the late 70s, by 1981, it is on the real estate market for sale. And two years later, 1983, no one had purchased it. They did like a little write-up in the paper. Sometime in the late 1980s, I don't know exactly which year, the building was demolished. And today, you really would have no idea that it once stood where it used to unless you'd been there before. So there you have it, the story of the Atlanta Sports Arena. Um, if you do want to drive by, I think if you the address is 310 Chester Avenue, would will at least take you to that spot. Um, but there are a lot of Atlantans that have been there for concerts or wrestling or boxing or, I mean, heck, maybe you were there for Elvis Presley. So I would love to hear from it. If you've been there, write me a message. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or review wherever you're listening to your podcast. There's also a Patreon link in the show notes if you want to support. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.